Hello, friends. Welcome to the show. Greg Kokel here. And I, uh, Amy, I owe you an apology. I forgot to announce last hour, which is the first podcast of the week, that you were on February 1st, 12 p.m. Pacific Time Q&A Facebook. Two days ago from the time people are receiving this now. Sorry about that. I got a big asterisk in my announcements about it, and uh, I have failed you. So, friends, it, it's, it is available, though, probably archived, right? Okay, so, friends, you missed it. My fault. But you can go back to the archive. Amy uh, had a Q&A on Facebook on Wednesday, February 1st. And you could have posted questions for her to answer. Too bad. So sad. But I will say this. Alan Schleeman will be at Broadway Christian Church in Mattoon, Illinois, February 3rd, Friday through Sunday, February 5th. So that's today, if you're getting the podcast right away, Friday through Sunday. So if you're within striking distance of Mattoon, Illinois, which is on the, uh, you know, near the Mississippi River, I think, as I recall, um, he'll be uh, also uh, speaking at uh, Providence Church in Frisco, Texas, on the 26th, which is Sunday. Um, I'm also this weekend... On Sunday, February 5, uh, Valley View Christian Church in Littleton, Colorado. That's right outside of Denver. And uh, so those are the... Oh, and also I'm going to be at Desert Apologetics Conference in Palm Springs the following week. Uh, That conference is February 9 through 11, and I will be there on Saturday the 11th. So these are events that are coming up here. Also, reality, oh my goodness, see, I forgot to mention that too, but reality now is three weeks away, the Dallas reality, and the stats from Tuesday, that's like for you, four days ago, three days ago, we were at 1935. Okay, 1,935 people already signed up. Our total capacity for the main venue is 2,200, and we got room for 400 in the overflow. So we can take 2,600 total max every seat filled, and we're two-thirds of the way there with about with three weeks to go. So if you're thinking about doing reality in Dallas, I'm just saying this is the best reality we've ever had. Go to realityapologetics.com, and it's worth driving to. If you're in Missouri, if you're in Oklahoma, if you're in New Mexico, if you're in Louisiana— if you're anywhere in the state of Texas, I know it's a big Texas state, but take the drive, make it a road trip, and don't miss this reality conference. And the emphasis, by the way, is deconstruction and deconversion. Young people are leaving Christianity by droves, and they're being encouraged. They're being encouraged to do so by those who have been Christians and are now have left Christianity, and they're on the sidelines rooting for others to do the same. Deconstruct your faith and deconvert is the idea. And so we are addressing that concern, hitting it head-on, and uh, not giving it the soft, uh, the soft treatment. And we're looking at the issues, and we're talking about the concerns, and we're addressing the issues and the arguments. So realityapologetics.com, Dallas coming up, March, uh, make that, I'm sorry, February 24th and 25th. I mentioned March because I'm looking at Philly now. 
a month later, the 24th and 25th in Philly, uh, what do we have? Um, I think we have, that's half full, something like that. Now, I don't have all my numbers in front of me, but I just got a report on it. And that's two months away. <laughs> so uh, that's a smaller venue. So you want to make sure you can sign up for that if you're in that area. And uh, Augusta, Georgia, April 21st and 22nd. So that's the uh, skinny on reality coming up. Let's go to our callers now. And next on board is Audrey. And it just says the Deep South. Audrey, welcome. Uh, hello, Mr. Reg. It's an honor. Hi. Um, so I actually have two questions, and it's sort of um, a conglomeration of the two that I'm asking. Um, and it has to do with slavery. <laughs> yeah. All right. So just to start out and say real quick, these views have not made me doubt or weaken my faith, but my inability to refute them is debilitating. Wait, uh, could, you, wait could you say that again? Uh, you move it a little fast, and it gets a little distorted, and I have a hard time hearing and okay. understanding. So, so the question is about slavery, Book of Exodus in particular, right? Yes, sir. And I've heard this uh, argument, and while it's not convincing to me, I'm not able to refute it, uh, and it's and a unique angle to me. And it says, this is the argument, it says that the Bible was just a document written by some fanatical Israelite ruler who wanted to control people with religion. And the subject that's used to support this is the issue of slavery. Um, and now when I would try to refute the slavery and showing that the antebellum concept of slavery is totally different from the ancient biblical view of slavery, but it just doesn't hold up to par, more or less, I feel like, when they quote, Exodus 21, right. uh, verses 20 through 21, and it says, If a man smite a servant and he dies, he shall be punished, but notwithstanding, if he continue a day or two, he shall not be punished, for he is his money. Yeah. And uh, then there's the other problem of Leviticus 25, 44 through 46, starting in verse 44, kind of paraphrasing. It says, The children of the heathen round about you, of them shall you buy, and given down to verse 46, it says, the Israelites shall inherit these heathen people for possession, and they shall be the Israelites' bondmen forever, but over the Israelites, uh, you basically shall not rule over one another. Um, do these verses override the year of Jubilee? Because, like, inherit for possession, Wait, do they? Forever? Wait, do they override... I'm sorry, I missed the point. The, do they override... The year of Jubilee, like, when a slave oh, would get to go free. Right. Do these like inherit forever kind of seems permanent. Well, um, this issue is a really complicated issue, so let me just say that right out the bat, because there's a lot that the Scriptures have to say about it. So I, rather than trying to untie or unwrap individual passages, let me just offer some thoughts about how to understand these passages, okay? Um, yes, first of all, the word uh, in Hebrew— that is translated slave, is the Hebrew word ebed. That's E-B-E-D, transliterated into English. E-B-E-D, ebed. Okay? That word is the same word that means servant as well. Slave, servant, same thing. And in fact, um, prior to the 19th, uh, the beginning of the 20th century, um, the, the, the the Hebrew word Ebed was almost never translated slave. It was 
almost always translated servant. So let me just say, I'm not saying there wasn't any slavery the way we kind of understand slavery in the Old, in, in old Testament times, but there is confusion that is created by the way that this word is used. So, Moses was the Ebed of God, translated servant, but he also had Ebeds, slaves. Why doesn't it say Moses had servants? And so what this does is, is it creates confusion, because if I were to say, especially someone from the Deep South like yourself, Audrey, I would make reference to slavery in the Bible. What picture comes to your mind? I mean, obviously plantation owners and cotton. Exactly. (laughs) The American slavery system, in which people were kidnapped, and then they were shipped over at great loss of life, and they were um, pressed into forced servitude, and their lives, they had no rights, and they had uh they 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 could be killed at will etc cetera, etc cetera. so we get this picture here when we see the word slavery in the old testament so i'll tell you something and this is the second thing first thing is that the word for slave comes from the hebrew word that could also be translated servant and many times it would be better to translate it because it captures the sense of it better in that particular passage. But secondly, what I just described that we think about when we read the word slave is nothing like the kind of system that was practiced back then, because not the Hebrews. There were other countries that practiced brutal slavery, but not the Hebrews. Why not? Because the Hebrews were regulated by the Mosaic Law. And according to the Mosaic Law, kidnapping was a capital crime. According to the law, if you kidnap somebody, you should be executed for that. Now, the American system of slavery was based on kidnapping. So if, if, those, if, if Americans would have followed the Mosaic Law on this issue, we would never have slavery, because it was based on kidnapping. Secondly, there were rules on how to treat slaves, or abeds, servant yes, slaves. Sir. There are all yes, kinds sir. of rules in the Hebrew Scriptures about that. Go ahead. But uh, I agree with that. But it seems to me in Leviticus 25 when it says, uh, Of the heathen round about them you shall buy, and you, they'll be your possession. But over your brethren, you, shall, you, won't, you can't rule over like a fellow Israelite. Doesn't that seem a little uh, problematic? Yes, it does. And I agree. And so this is another part of the explanation. There were lots of things that were going on in, um, in the ancient world that God's law moderated and, in a certain sense, radically improved on. Okay? Um, okay. It isn't the standards that we have today, admittedly. But the mistake, I think, is trying to take our standards from today and then read them back into history, like a lot of people have done with even our founders 200 years ago, and they're imposing upon them kind of moral sensibilities and patterns that we have today that they, that they think that should have been the case 200 years ago, when even in our own country there was a process of dealing with the slavery problem. 
and it was a step-by-step process. So what you see in um, in in the the Mosaic Law is a is a way of dealing with the general slavery. But I, again, I hesitate to use that word because a lot of times it wasn't. Much of the time, it was indentured servanthood. These were employees essentially. These are people who sold themselves, if you will. I mean, if you want to use that language, so so they they. This is how the economy worked. If you wanted, if you were either someone who had servants that you took care of and paid, or you were a servant that was had by someone else who took care of you and paid for your work. Okay, that's a massive part of it. And so, if somebody you know was without any means of livelihood, they could indenture themselves to. Uh, to, to a Jewish uh, master, if you will. All of these words are, are so laden with, uh, with meaning. But you could indenture yourself to, a, to an employer. And there you have means of livelihood. You'd have a place to live, you had food to eat, you'd be involved in meaningful service, you'd, be, you'd have uh, relationships. Um, and by the way, in the law, if you broke a servant's tooth, you had to release him. So, yes, sir. so there are lots of restrictions on the behavior. I like to say that the Jews, I'm sorry, that servants slash ebeds. Let's just leave it that way. Ebeds, servant slave, whatever they had, they had um, union protection, and the union protection was the Mosaic Law. So, on the one hand, you have things that are not ideal, and um, there is a basis down the line for getting rid of the entire system of what we now call slavery. And that was the idea that human beings are made in the image of God. Okay? Back then, everybody had slaves. The whole world had slaves. You either were a slave owner or a slave, basically. Well, I guess there might have been a middle class, but not much of one. But uh, so what it, what God does in the law is he regulates it to minimize the negative impact for the Jews, and makes provision even with the year of Jubilee. Now, there were different rules for Jews as Abeds and non-Jews as Abeds. I understand that, and I can't strain through all of the details. I will recommend a book for you, uh, Paul Copan's book. His last name is spelled C-O-P-A-N, and his book is, Is God a Moral Monster? (laughs) Is God and is God a vindictive bully? I'm sorry. And the other one he did about God being a vindictive bully. Yeah, that's the second one, right? Vindictive bully. So he, what he does is he takes, he goes through great pains to parse out all of these passages. And I've had Paul on the show before, and I admit, especially for a generalist like me, it's hard to dot every i and cross every t to every person's satisfaction. So let me say just a couple of things, and the word translated slave many times is really referring to servants that are indentured servants. It's an employment relationship that we see in these passages, and the employee, the servant, had union representation. It wasn't like the Wild West, anything goes. There were regulations for the Jews from the Mosaic Law on things related to Ebed's. And is even so, it's still not ideal, but it was a whole lot better than all the other nations on earth. 
and eventually the biblical ethic um, gave a foundation for abolition. And it was based on Scripture that Christians, both in the UK and in the, uh, in the States, were able to abolish slavery. Their Christian convictions, their Christian rationale, was the basis for abolishing slavery. So is that tidy? No. But it isn't the way people make it sound. It isn't like God's all in favor of the kind of slavery they think of when they imagine or they, they picture slavery in the antebellum South in the U.S. Yes, sir. Uh, can I have your thoughts on this uh, uh, theory real quick, though? Thoughts on what? Uh, can I have your thoughts on a popular or more or less popular theory that's going around that says that the Mosaic laws were just written by a fanatical ruler trying to scare the people by religion? What would you say to that? Well, I guess I'd want what that is is an assertion about the motives of the people who wrote the Mosaic Law. Um, what I didn't, I, I couldn't make out the entire concern there. But what's interesting is, and I, I wrote about this a long, long time ago. If I, if human beings are going to make up a god, why would they make up a god who is so hard to please, so hard to live with? for everybody, you know, in a certain sense, but who at the same time makes provision for all our mistakes through a merciful forgive system of forgiveness. My sense as I read the Old Testament, and especially in conjunction with the New Testament, is we have something that really defies a naturalistic explanation. Now, I don't. people who make these kinds of comments, I, I do not have the sense at all that most of them are uh, are looking for a, a, a clear explanation and an answer. They are saying it's just these kind of people who wrote that. Now, why would they think, what are the reasons they think that these people of ill will made all of this stuff up to control other people? Well, because this controls other people. Well, yeah, but if it's written by God, if that's where the Bible comes from, it, it's going to have factors of control in it as well. Just like if you have parents, they tell you what you should and shouldn't do. It, 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 to me, it, it's their job to demonstrate uh, the truth of the claim against Scripture. Yes, sir. You know, if they're saying these are the motives of the people. Now, if you, I, I have reasons to believe that there's more going on here with Scripture than just a whole bunch of people making a bunch of stuff up to control other people. All right, um, because the scripture actually indicts everybody, <laughs> not just the controllers, the so-called controllers. And if this is the case, let's just say the Mosaic Law. Why would the controllers put restrictions on themselves through the provisions of the Mosaic Law regarding slavery or servanthood? Why would they put restrictions on themselves? So this is where you, when you actually look at the internal evidence of the text, that explanation doesn't seem to be the best explanation to me. I mean, that was just kind of a quick bonus answer here for your other question, but... Um, yes, sir. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. All right, Audrey. It's a pleasure talking with you. I appreciate the call. And um, I have said this before, especially when it comes to these issues, and there's a section in, in the new book coming out, Street Smarts, that that addresses things like slavery, alleged, the slavery in the Old Testament, and the uh, um, 
the alleged uh, ethnic cleansing, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And um, I'm the first one to acknowledge that these things are not all tidy. And it isn't like you can just tie it all up in a nice, sweet bow. There are loose ends here. But there are loose ends with every single worldview. Okay? So if, if there is no God, by the way, if it turns out, I don't believe, look at all this awful stuff in the Bible, as they understand it, Therefore, God doesn't exist. Well, if God doesn't exist, then this stuff isn't awful stuff morally. It's just stuff. It's the kind of thing that some people do because they have the power over others that don't have the power. Okay, what is our criterion for judgment then, morally speaking, against any of these practices? What we see here is God working through the Mosaic Law to reform practices that are terrible and put boundaries around them. And, and, and provide protection. God doesn't make a perfect world with the Mosaic Law. That's not now. That's in the future. And he has the means to do that. And the most significant means for accomplishing that is those people who don't belong in a perfect world, that would be everybody, including me. Those people can be made suitable for the perfect world through forgiveness and regeneration. And if that's not the answer, okay, fine, what is? What's the alternative? If God's gone, no ethnic cleansing of any kind is immoral, because there's no foundation for morality. If God is gone, no slavery of any kind is immoral, because there's no foundation for morality. No act is immoral. And by the way, no act is good either. No act is moral. No act is immoral. It's all lost in the twilight of moral nothingness. No standard, no laws, no law-breaking. Okay, that's the alternative. So, you know, this is the tendency is to look at things you don't like and say, oh, well, that's, that's out to lunch. No, therefore, I don't believe in God. Look at this. Now, some people might say, I believe in God, but not the Bible. That's another issue. But I'm just saying, you, 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 when you leave one thing, you leave it for something else. With the exception of if you're just agnostic and you're saying, well, I don't know. But we all know what the world is like. There's evil in the world. And if there's evil in the world, there's got to be some foundation for morality, real morality, objective morality, and evolution's not going to be able to do that. There's got to be some foundation for moral law. So what is your alternative? What's the alternative? That's a very important question whenever dealing with challenges to Christianity. Some are easier than others. This one, I think, is a more difficult challenge because it requires we go back 3,000 to 4,000 years, what's going on in culture and how God is working to modify that. It's also easy to cherry-pick passages and then make a big fuss about certain things when there's more to be said about those issues in the Scripture than one finds or thinks they find in that individual passage. Anyway, there you go. Let's take a break, and we'll be back with more of your calls on Stand to Reason. Do you have a passion to train people in apologetics, but you don't know where to start? You may be interested in starting an STR Outpost. STR Outposts are local communities of Christians seeking answers to the hard questions about Christianity. Each outpost is led by a qualified director who trains others with STR content and curriculum 
in their local church. By becoming an outpost director, you will be equipped with the content and coaching you need to lead your own outpost. We currently have more than 60 outposts across the country and we're adding more each month. If you're interested in learning more about starting an outpost or you want to find a current outpost in your area, visit str.org outposts. You can also email me, Robbie Lashua, at outposts at str.org. Hey friends, would you like to be encouraged throughout your week with timely, relevant content meant to bolster your knowledge, wisdom, and character? Or maybe you have a desire to be connected with other like-minded Christians from around the world. If so, then you need to follow Stand to Reason on social media. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. Not only will you be able to interact with other Stand to Reason followers, but you'll also stay up to date and informed on our latest resources and events. In our current culture, it's important to have something of value to break up your social media feed. So just visit str.org and find the links to all of our social media platforms at the bottom of the homepage. All right, now Amy Hall has um, done a little quick Bible work for me, and I want to read a verse to you in light of our prior conversation, and that has to do with slavery, or so-called slavery in Scriptures. What I hope I've done in responding to that last call is say there's a lot more going on than many people are aware of when they go and they cherry-pick verses to make the Bible look bad and the God of the Bible look bad, okay? It doesn't mean there aren't bad situations that we wish were different, but oftentimes there's a distortion. And what Amy showed me from the book of Job, chapter 31 and verse 13 through 15. Now, just pause for a moment. What's unique about the book of Job? According to scholars, it's the oldest book in the Bible. It's been around even before the Mosaic Law. Okay, I don't know all about that, but it goes way back. So what it is communicating, being as old as it is, is the most foundational theology of the Bible. And here's what Job says, If I have despised the claim of my male or female abeds, slaves, servants, whatever, if I have despised their claim, when they file a complaint against me, was there a means, by the way, in the slavery system, antebellum South, before the war, for, for the slaves filing a complaint against their owner? No. There apparently was here. If I despise the claim of my male or female abeds, when they file a claim against me, what then could I do when God arises? And when he calls me to account, what will I answer him? Did not he who made me in the womb make him? And the same one fashion us in the womb. Reminds me of the uh, abolition movement in England. And if you saw the movie Amazing Grace, this was featured. There was an emblem of a black slave in chains and the words said, am I not a man? I think that was the wording of it, am I not a man? Well, that's the point that Job is making here. Those who serve him and work for him call them slaves. They had claims. 
that that were to be honored claims in virtue of being human that's job's point and so this undergirds the entire perspective about slavery as characterized in the old testament the the scriptural understanding of human beings is that they have integrity and dignity in virtue of being human and when there is a complaint of a slave or a servant against the one who they serve that complaint has standing before god why because of their shared humanity that's the point job 31 verse 13 through 15. okay let's go to minnesota and uh jessica welcome to stand a reason you made it hey greg thanks hey What's up? So my I actually have question, uh, two questions. One is the definition of biblical love, uh-huh. love, and the other question I have is the definition of biblical judgment. And okay. the reason I'm asking uh, about these two particular words and their meaning uh, biblically is because I've been hearing a lot in my my circles at church or my circle at church of you know not to judge don't judge people we just need to love them uh-huh and in in my mind it sounds a lot like the world and so i i just want to be clear for myself because i've had conversations and i've i've studied um matthew 7 about hypocritical judgment yes um, right that's the and, favorite verse of the do not judge crowd <laughs> Right, um, but in context, it is it's it's don't judge hypocritically. That's correct. Don't be calling somebody out who's doing something if I'm doing the same thing. Mm-hmm. Um, the other question that kind of falls with that is: Is there a difference between judging brothers and sisters in Christ uh, versus unbelievers? Mm-hmm. Um, so I have questions about that, and then again, the love. You know, I I think that. My understanding of love is as First Corinthians thirteen tells us, right? Um, and and loving people is telling them the truth. That's part of it. So could I, you help me with this? <laughs> well, I can, but the thing is, you're well on your way to a right answer. And uh, sometimes okay. the tricky part is, in a sense, maneuvering in conversations with other Christians on these issues. So yeah. if somebody says, "Well, it's wrong to judge," really? Right. Okay. So I'm now I'm going to take my little tactical approach here. Where does it say that? Well, it says that, and Jesus said that. Where did he say it? Mm-hmm. Well, Servant of the Mount. Okay, let's go there. Mm-hmm. Now, you know where it's at, because you mm-hmm. read it. And you read mm-hmm. not just the judge not, the first two words, but you right. read the rest. Yes. Okay? And uh, it's interesting, even when it says, judge not, lest you be judged, mm-hmm. it, doesn't, it doesn't indicate there who, is, who, who or what will be doing the judgment in return. It could mm-hmm. be God, that's a candidate, could be others. But when you read the context, you realize the people that Jesus is talking about, as you pointed out, who are judging, they are judging the speck in the other person's eye when they have a log in their own. Mm-hmm. So now think about it. If, 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 if you're judging the speck in my eye and you got a log in yours, is it going to be really easy for me to say, who are you to talk? Are you <laughs> right. kidding me? Right. You're, 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 you're getting down at me because I looked at some girl in a bathing suit, a skimpy bathing suit, and you're <laughs> living with your boyfriend. Right. Okay, so I actually think that's what Jesus is getting at. 
or at least it's a very strong candidate. And of course, when you yeah. read further, so when someone says, judge not or whatever, and it's like, well, let's go back to the passage. Did you ever mm-hmm. read it? And then you go over the passage. So is Jesus saying it's wrong to ever pass judgment? Now, by the way, if he's doing that, then the person who is abrading you for judging is also violating that command. Right. Because that's a judgment. Why are you judging me? Right. Yes, that's right. Okay. (laughs) Right. So what's necessary is to go back to these particular things and to ask the questions about their understanding of it. And that's why the Matthew 7 is is an easy one, because it's very clear. Don't Mm -hmm. throw what's holy to dogs. Right. Don't throw your pearls before swine. Is Jesus, does, does, does obeying Jesus' directive there require that we make a judgment of some sort? Yes. Absolutely. Who's the dogs? Who are the pigs? Right? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, that requires a judgment. So we were, actually, Amy and I did uh, SDRS this morning, mm-hmm. and an issue like this came up, and I was referring to something in the tactics book, I don't know if oh, you yeah. have it or not. I do. Well, okay, turn to the chapter, because I now I looked it up. I was referring to it in general. I said, I think I addressed this, but okay. I went and looked it up. And the chapter uh, on the tactic, Just the Facts, Ma'am, has a segment okay. that says, Just the Context, uh, just okay. the context Ma'am. And there mm-hmm. I talk about judging. It turns okay. out there are three different types of judgments in the Scriptures. Some okay. are prohibited, and some are commanded. Okay. Paul says, do not participate in the evil deeds of darkness, but even expose them. Now, he doesn't use the word judgment there. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, where... where, where um, I, it was interesting because the I had my Bible open, and you have one verse on judgment on one side— one mm-hmm. page, and the other page has the an opposite verse. So maybe, let me just move to Matthew 7, maybe that's it. Is that where we were in Matthew 7? Yeah, the, I'm in Matthew 7. Yeah, let me, I'm just going to, if if this is the case where, uh, no, it wasn't Matthew 7, it was another passage. But okay. on the right-hand side, it, mm-hmm. it condemned certain types of judgment. On the mm-hmm. left-hand side, Jesus says, Judge with a righteous judgment. What is it, Amy? Oh, John 8 and 7. Okay, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Okay, John 8 and John 7. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Paging through it right now. Okay. Okay. Uh, So on the one hand, oh, gosh, Greg, turning my pages. You can hear it. Okay. Um, uh, La, 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 la. No, I'm looking for the passage. I, I eight seven. Oh, okay. I turn another page. Eight seven says, um, oh, "Okay, that's right." Because it was the woman caught in adultery, right? And he says, oh, "Jesus yes. says, okay. he who is without sin cast the first stone." So that sounds right. like that's non-judgment, right? Um, mm-hmm. But then, if you look across the page at John seven twenty four, do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. There is a command to judge properly. Right. So then, why does he say this? You know, uh, let he who is without sin cast the first stone. And I yeah. can't go into detail now that that's because sure. Jesus was dealing with a very specific circumstance where a woman was mm-hmm. set up. by bad people Mm -hmm. to trap Jesus into Mm -hmm. disagreeing with the Mosaic Law. 
So mm-hmm. that we don't take those verses in John chapter 8 as a, okay, here's the rule. You can't mm-hmm. cast a stone unless you're sinless. Well, for goodness sake, that means that no criminal could ever be punished if what Jesus is doing is giving us a principle of judgment. He's not doing that. Right. He's doing something else. But it's clear mm-hmm. in John 7, judge with righteous judgment. So uh, there is a, there we're commanded to judge appropriately, okay? Yeah. Um, it's interesting. I got a little note here in John 7, judge with the righteous judgment. I, I said, look at verse 7 of chapter 7. So it's 7, okay. 7. Jesus says, the world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify of it that its deeds are mm. evil. Okay. Oh, is that a judgment? Yeah. <laughs> I guess so. Jesus right. is judging Mm-hmm. People for in, and so that's a judgment as an assessment, and that's the kind of judgment we're obliged to make. Now, mm-hmm. in daily life, this works out itself out in different ways. And mm-hmm. Paul does say in First Corinthians chapter five, he mm-hmm. said, "We're not about judging the world; we're about mm-hmm. judging those who are inside the church." There was sexual okay. immorality inside the church, First Corinthians okay. five, and Paul says, okay. "What are you doing? Judge that person." The, Christ, yes. the Christian. Okay, Paul says okay. to judge them, and in fact, he upbraids mm-hmm. them for their, you know, kind of tolerance. What? What? You're not right. mourning? Right. Okay, so that's first. So that's First Corinthians five. But, but inside the world, well, look at we don't expect non Christians to live like Christians. Okay, so right. we're not looking down our nose at people who are living consistently with the way they are. That is right. of the flesh. But when mm-hmm. it comes to Christians, we have a different standard. And mm-hmm. so, yep. um, okay. so, okay, that's, that's, there's a package of judgment stuff for you. There's a mixed yeah, bag. It you. just depends. We don't have a blanket rule, no judging. Right. The Bible does not teach that, okay? So that's the first thing. Then the qu- second thing is love. We right. know a lot about the, the meanings of these words, uh, how they're used in context. That's how we understand all language is mm-hmm. inductively mm-hmm. the way it's being used. Now, you mentioned First yes. uh, Corinthians 13. Now, that's a classic passage on love, where Paul mm-hmm. makes it really, really clear. It's mm-hmm. interesting that, um, you know, as he introduces the chapter, he mm-hmm. makes all kinds of judgments. He said, if I speak of with tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I'm a noisy gong and a clanging cymbal. That's a judgment. Yes. These are judgments okay. against people who ma- manifest or say they manifest spirituality of some sort, but are not mm-hmm. loving in the process. That's not mm-hmm. right. So even the First Corinthians 13 passage, which gives characteristics of love, mm-hmm. is, is, um, is a, a judgment against the Corinthians here in context, who are not living in a in a loving fashion? They're fussing right. about their gifts when they when they're actually not doing the most important thing, which mm-hmm. is fulfilling the command to love. And then we have the characterization there. I think the part of Paul's characterization that is important for our issues here is that mm-hmm. Paul says love does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices mm-hmm. in the truth. Right. So when when we identify wrong behavior that is not necessarily unloving. Now mm-hmm. I'm choosing my words carefully here. 
Right. There are lots of times we could tell the truth in an unloving way. Or we mm-hmm. can make a fuss mm-hmm. about something that may be wrong, but it isn't worth the fuss that we're creating, right? Mm-hmm. So right. that would be unloving. But the problem is people complain simply in virtue of the fact that we're identifying sin as sin. Oh, that's not loving. Yeah. Really? Right. Exactly. That's exactly that's so, exactly what I think, too. Going back to this passage, it might be a good idea with the Christians. So the mm-hmm. question you might ask is, where is the clearest characterization of God's love? Mm-hmm. Of, of what love is, let me put it that way. Now, if they say okay. Jesus, well, hard to argue with that. Right. Because he manifested. But then I would ask, mm-hmm. okay, did Jesus ever judge anybody? <laughs> no, duh. Go and right, sin no right. more, right? So well, I, I mean, think just... what the rebuttal would be is, well, he, you know, Jesus was God. Okay. But, All but right. I okay. understand so, that he was fully human. Okay. Yes, but but if, yes, yeah, th- all this shows is that mm-hmm. judging in itself is not wrong. It's mm-hmm. not automatically wrong. Jesus mm-hmm. judged. Did Paul right. judge? Yeah, Paul judged. Did John yeah. speak yeah. in a judgmental way? Of course. I have a question somebody asked about the Antichrist in First John. This is not the, you know, anybody who denies Jesus is the Christ is the Antichrist. What? Right. That's pretty strong. Mm-hmm. No, there are all the individuals in the New Testament exercised judgment against falsehood and sin. They mm-hmm. all did. Mm-hmm. And we have this characterization of 1 Corinthians 13, does not mm-hmm. rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices in the truth. So mm-hmm. uh, we, we, don't, we don't, you know, give the short shrift to sin as a way of not judging, okay, of, of, uh, yeah. of, of, of showing love. You know, that's, that's very confused. Now, I understand mm-hmm. You know, some people can get really persnickety about things, and, and they're just crabby and always condescending at other people and find, being critical, and that's not a, a good spirit. It's not a virtuous spirit, okay? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. When people speak against condescension like that, and there you're back to Matthew chapter 7, well, then they, they are speaking appropriately. But mm-hmm. if there's a blanket condemnation of all judgments— um. And in in favor of what they want to call love, which is affirmation, mm-hmm. um, that's not a biblical view. In fact, it's right. it's self defeating because mm-hmm. you could say to them, "Wait a minute! So when you say love, you mean what? We ought to be loving them. What does that look like? Well, we should be affirming them. Okay, mm-hmm. do you love me? Should you be loving me? Yes. Well, then why aren't you affirming what I do right now? You're correct. Good me. point. You're telling me I'm wrong. You're telling right. me I should live differently. Why are you so, being so judgmental? So at that mm-hmm. point, we're just playing their rules back on them to show how their rules are are just mixed up. Yep, right. And I think you're right. This is a reflection of a worldly point of view. I agree. Mm-hmm. I agree entirely. Okay. So that that's great because when I've when I've you know used Matthew seven and I said no you know I, I had this discussion with a gentleman at my church and I and I said no it's you know we are to judge but judge not you know righteously and not hypocritically. Mm-hmm. 
because practically speaking, if we think about you know how that how that carries out in life as Christians, we are to stand for what is right. We are right. to say wrong is wrong, sin right. is sin. Correct. And if if we're loving people based on the world view or or the world's definition of love, and we're 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 following that, uh-huh. then how is how are we going to be effective for Christ right. if we don't stand up and and speak? It? I was listening to one of your podcasts right. recently about. You know, we have to speak the gospel. We can't just live it out. I mean, that's part of it, but we also have to speak. We also have to talk. And yeah, that's a hard thing to do, but that's what God tells us we need to do. We mm-hmm. need to speak it, because if we don't speak it, you know, who's going to hear? And if they don't hear, how exactly. are they going to know? Exactly. You know? Sure, you're um, right. Yeah, and good news, by the way, is only good news relative to the bad news. If there's no bad news, then the good news right. is not good. And by the way, here's another question that could mm-hmm. be asked. Um, sure. Given slavery in the antebellum South— you yeah. know, before the war, we, should we have, uh, we should have, should we have objected to the slavery, or should we have just loved the slave owners, been loving to the slave owners, and not judged them for being slave owners, right? Right. Now, that, that's like, that's easy, right? It's like, it's so obvious. Well, oh, yeah, <laughs> but, exactly. But that's why this principle can't be lived out. What can be lived out is the New mm-hmm. Testament mm-hmm. ethic, where we judge properly. Well, mm-hmm. we judge properly. All right? Yeah. Well, thanks, Greg. I still appreciate you clarifying that for me. Okay. That's uh, great talking to you, Jessica. You too, Greg. Have a good night. Okay. Bye-bye now. Bye. Oh, that was fun. Uh, let's uh, let's see. Let's take a quick break, and then we'll go to Renee in Kansas um, as our last caller. Be back in a moment. Did you know Stand to Reason has a YouTube channel? We release a new video each Monday on the topics you care about. Through short, engaging videos, our speakers train you on tactics, offer apologetics tips, answer common theology questions, and address big issues in the world today. Join tens of thousands of other subscribers so you can stay up to date when we release a new video. Just go to youtube.com and search STR videos, all one word, and hit the subscribe button. That's STR videos. Take advantage of this free resource to help you stay informed, encouraged, and equipped as you share your worldview with others. Have you seen our brand new website? Stop by str.org and enjoy a fresh, clean layout with all the same great content. The new Standard Reason website was designed with you in mind. It has an easier-than-ever navigation and a crisp, simple layout so you can find all the sound analysis and careful commentary that you've come to expect from us. Browse new features that make finding your favorite resources easier than ever. As always, it's our goal to equip you, our fellow Christians, with the confidence, clear thinking, and courage you need for every encounter you have as a Christian ambassador. Our new website is just one way we're fulfilling that goal, allowing you to access the resources you need in a new and improved way. So visit str.org and keep coming back to discover new podcasts, articles, and videos each and every day. All right, final segment here, and we've got uh, Renee in Kansas. Welcome to the show, Renee. Hi, Greg. Hi there. What a privilege to get to speak with you. Oh, thank you. Thank you for your ministry. It has been so helpful to me. That's great. Thank you. So what's on your mind? My question question is about something that came up yesterday in our adult Sunday school class, well, Sunday, um, 
and that is whether Jesus today in heaven is still 100% man and 100% God, or whether the incarnation um, was temporary in terms of uh, his having a, a human aspect to him that um, he needed while he was doing his earthly ministry. Mm-hmm. So um, there was disagreement among the people at our table about mm. whether Jesus is today only God or whether he is, in fact, still 100% man and 100% God, what was even the... though... Go ahead. Even though his um, his body now is a glorified body, like the one we will have one day. Um, so he's like a, a an absolute. I mean, he was always a perfect human, but he's now a glorified perfect human. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And, well, it's a, it's a different kind God. of human body. It's a glorified body, but it is still a human body that is his body. So when we read in the book of Revelation, Jesus coming back, um, you know, I don't have the language right in front of me, but what we, we have this magnificent glorified characterization, but, um, but the, human, the body is his, and he is mm-hmm. the one, his body is the one, or he is the one, who was the Lamb of God who was crucified, okay? When he came back and saw his disciples, he said, look at this, is, look at my hands, look at my feet. Thomas put his fingers in the wounds. Uh, This is my body. Now, he was resurrected, and the manifestation of the glorified body was a little different there than we see in the book of Revelation. Nevertheless, it was Jesus after the crucifixion and after the resurrection, and he was still himself in a human body and had the marks of the human body before the resurrection. Those were the wounds that Thomas mm-hmm. probed, remember that, at the end of the yeah. book of John. So uh, I, I have, we have no reason, and, and there, we have other descriptions of Jesus um, interceding and different things. There is no reason whatsoever, biblically, to think that there is somehow a reversal of the Incarnation. All right? And kind of what's interesting is all these details, you mentioned 100% God, uh, 100% man, uh, that's the Chalcedonian formula, okay? And the, the the Chalcedonian Creed was written like 4th or 5th century, I, maybe late 5th century, I guess, 400-something. Um, but nevertheless, so 500 years after Jesus rose from the dead, the Christians are still confessing that Jesus is 100% God and 100% man, and to deny that would be an act of heresy. And there were different types of denials. So, given church history and given what we know about the resurrection and the appearances of Jesus after the resurrection in the Gospels, and then Jesus that we see in the book of Revelation, we have no reason to believe he is no longer human. Uh, And incidentally, he did not take on human aspect that was the word you used, and maybe you weren't trying to be precise, which is okay. But he took on humanity. He was fully human. That's the point of saying, as you did, 100% man. 
he was fully human. So how does he get yeah. rid of his human humanity? Mm -hmm. well, how does that? How does he get rid of that? I think people maybe um, have a difficult time with the idea that that Jesus, who existed in eternity past, could have so radically changed in the Incarnation and that it was forever after going to be that way. Okay, I, I understand some of the problem here, okay? And I'm just going to take you at your words here, and I'm going to strain at them a little bit. Jesus, who existed in eternity past. Jesus didn't exist in eternity past. Jesus is the name of the human being that was the incarnation of the Son of God, the second person. Okay. So there was no Jesus until Christmas morning, or I should say until the conception. Right. Okay. There was no Jesus was before the, that. So there was the second person of the Trinity. Correct. Yeah. And so this yeah. is where, this is where um, precision and talking about these things is really important. So what we have is we have the eternal God, who mm -hmm. subsists in three persons: the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, right. and the Son came down to earth, as it were and was incarnated, and at this point what we have is the divine nature of the Son, the second person of the Trinity, that took on a human nature. The human nature isn't eternal, the divine nature is eternal. But he took on a human nature, so now he is one person, that's the second person of the Trinity, but two natures, the divine nature that's, that is essential, essential to being the second person of the Trinity, and a human nature that is added to it. And so God didn't become man, strictly speaking. He had humanity added to it. Now, that's weird, I admit. Mm -hmm. Okay, but so how does that happen? Well, that's the miracle of the Incarnation. But that's what's taught in Scripture. So mm -hmm. when, when it comes to things like this, this is not the time for lay people to speculate. <laughs> These things have been worked out hundreds and hundreds, almost 2,000 years ago, by people who really understood Scripture and really uh, understood how to articulate the distinctions here in very precise ways. So I encourage you to get the Chalcedonian Creed. You can get it on, you Google it, that's C-H-A-L, Chalcedonian, okay? Or, or get the, get the, um, the um, any of the creeds, any of the early creeds that talk about Christology, okay? And then see how they characterize these things really carefully. Having a bunch of, you know, Christians getting together and speculating, this is, a, this is good, well, I can't figure out how is it this and that, and it turns out there's a lot of misunderstanding, about the nature of the Incarnation, just in the way you express this. I'm not saying you're misunderstanding it, I'm saying that they're surely misunderstanding it, and that's why there are questions in their mind. And so th this has been worked out before, and this is why we have the Nicene Creed, and we have the well, Apostles' Creed, which was very spare, very minimalistic. Mm -hmm. Then you have the Council of Nicaea, and the Nicene Creed. Then you have the Chalcedonian Creeds, okay, and the Athanasian Creed. Okay, and all of these are meant to 
speak very precisely and very biblically about the the very same things that we're discussing right here. Now, once we read those things and we get clear on what classical Christianity actually represents, then we can ask questions. But what we aren't going to say is, how is it that Jesus could have existed in eternity past? Jesus didn't exist in eternity past. God did. Which, right. which includes, of course, the second person of the Trinity. Okay? Right. And then when he takes on a human nature, and then he appears after the resurrection, is that human nature, that human self, still in evidence? Yes, of course. In the post-resurrection appearances, and they're in the book of Revelation. Okay, so why would you assume that he doesn't have any body anymore? That would be my question. Right. So, um, a lot of, the, part of the problem here is, these are, 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 this is, these are meaty issues. They're not just basic fundamental mm-hmm. issues, right, like that. Mm-hmm. They're meaty issues, but they are issues that have been poured over and worked through by Christian thinkers of the past, and they made very precise statements about, the, about uh, how to cash out these concepts, and those are called the creeds, the, the Nicene Creed, the Athanasian Creed, and the Chalcedonian Creed. My suggestion is that you and your friends, you read through those. Then if you have questions, go from there. All right. Hey, thanks for the uh, thanks for the call, Renee. It was a great conversation. I really appreciate the question. Uh, that's it for this show, friends. Greg Kokel here for Stand to Reason. Give them heaven. Bye-bye now. <laughs> 